The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning. I'm John. I'm one of the other pastors here at Westway Christian Church, and I too am really glad that you're here today. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to go and open it to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a number of different uh, scriptures today. Um, inside your bulletin lists, um, lists most of them, about, about halfway down the page. We're going to be looking at Colossians 4, uh, 2 Timothy 2, and then 1 Corinthians 5. So you can kind of follow along um, with that. If you, have you, um, if you have any questions, I would encourage you uh, from today's message, I would encourage you to send a text to 307-316-2023. And then on Tuesdays, um, now that we're through the holidays, we're going to be back on our uh, normal 11:15 Tuesday uh, Q&A to answer your uh, thoughts and questions. Well, it's the beginning of the year, and I know many of you are focused on um, thinking about what, what matters for 2019. All you had to do, all I did this week, um, was look on Facebook and, like, what's someone's word for the, for the year or what are their plans for the year? Uh, how much weight are they going to lose? Um, how much food are they not going to eat? How much are they going to work out? How much time are people going to spend in their Bibles and in prayer, uh, spending time in relationship with other people? And the thing is, the idea of, of New Year's resolutions, that's not, that's not a new concept. The ancient Babylonians are said to have been the first people that came up with the concept of New Year's resolutions about 4,000 years ago. Um, they held uh, celebrations to honor the new year, only they didn't celebrate it in January. They celebrated it around March when their crops were planted. And they would have a big uh, 12-day religious festival that was called Ikatu. And the Babylonians crowned a new king and reaffirmed, reaffirmed their loyalty to their existing king during this time. They made promises to the gods to pay off their debts and then returned any objects that they had borrowed. And these promises, these commitments, were kind of the forerunner of the New Year's resolution. And if the Babylonians kept their word, then the gods would, the gods would be happy with them. The gods would smile upon them and give them a good year. And then in ancient Rome, Julius Caesar played with the calendar, and he said that January 1st was the beginning of the new year, about 46 B.C., and January is named for the Roman god Janus, who was two-faced and supposedly lived in doorways. And believing that Janus symbolically looked backwards and forwards, the Romans offered sacrifices to that deity on January 1st and made promises of good conduct for the coming year. And then for, for early Christians, they began to look at the first day of the year as a way to reflect back on the previous year's mistakes and look forward into what, um, what God was going to have for them, how they could do better in the coming year. In 1740, John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism, he created the Covenant Renewal Service, and this was commonly held on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. It's also called the Watch Night Service. Maybe that's something you've heard of. And they would read scripture and sing songs. And this would serve as a, as a spiritual alternative to the way people outside of the church uh, typically celebrated New Year's Eve. I don't know if, um, if what we're going to do over the next couple months can technically 
be called a tradition yet because it's only our second year um, doing this. But at the beginning of each year, what we're going to talk about as, as a church body is what, what we need to be focused on for the coming year. What God is going to do, what we think and hope that God is going to do um, in our body in the coming year. And because the church is made up of people, and we've used this phrase before, and I'm sure um, many of you, if you've been here, can probably uh, state it for me. But because the church is made up of people, people who forget their purpose make life about what? They make it about themselves. They make it about their preferences and their power and their place and their position. And because the church is made up of people, the church can do that too. It is very easy for us as a church as a body of gathered believers, to make things about ourselves, to make things about our own preferences, about our own power that we think we have, our own place and our own position. But the church has a purpose. The church exists for a reason, and that reason is simple. It's to go and make disciples. It's to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach those same people, to disciple those same people, to do and follow all of the commands that Jesus has given us. We're here to proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's, that's our purpose. That's why we gather together every single Sunday morning. That's why we gather in small groups. That's why we gather in relationship with one another is to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to utilize our time together during the 10:15, and, and hopefully in your small groups, if that's what your small group does, talking about what that means for us. What does it mean for us to proclaim Jesus as Lord in 2019? And today we're going to kind of start at, at the basic piece. We want to be focused on the lost. We want to be focused on people who don't know who Jesus is. Specifically, like how do we interact with people who don't know who Jesus is? What does it look like for me to have a relationship and a conversation with someone who has no idea who Jesus is? I recently picked up a book by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And in it, um, he quotes a recent Lifeway poll. This was one of the responses of non-evangelicals who changed their opinion about evangelicals since the 2016 election. Six said their opinion worsened for everyone who said it improved. I want to read that to you again because I I want you to understand what's going on. Of non-evangelicals who changed their opinion about evangelicals since the 2016 election, six said their opinion worsened for everyone who said it improved. I wonder if we hear that. For people who had one opinion prior to the 2016 election— of evangelicals, and, and that's, most of, that's most of us in the room. We would, we would be considered evangelicals. People who aren't evangelicals, maybe people who aren't Christians, their opinion of, of us is worse now than it was prior to the 2016 election. And I wonder how, as Christians, how do we respond to that? What do, we, what do we do with that information? I was thinking about that. Maybe, maybe some of us don't care. We would be tempted to think, like, why do we care what non-evangelicals, why would we care what non-Christians think about us? Because after all, I mean, we're, we're right. 
right? So why do we care what anyone who's not within our group, why would we care what they seem to think about us? I mean, didn't Jesus say, the world hated me, so they're going to hate you? Well, here's, here's really why it matters. Because if we think that, if they think that we don't love them, they're not going to be interested in our message. They are not going to listen to us. And, and we can be right. And even if we are right, they will not want to listen to the message. You won't make disciples of someone who thinks you don't love them. Does that make sense? You can't make a disciple of someone if they think that you don't love them and you don't care about them. And this is, and this is why and, and where and when that, that quest for our own preferences and our own desire for place and power and position, that pushes up against what God's purpose is for our church. That pushes up against what God's purpose is for his church. Because the purpose is to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And when Jesus sent out his, his disciples at one point, he told them this, Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among doves. I love this next thing he said. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. So when we go out into the world, when we go out to proclaim this message of Jesus, this message of discipleship, we are to be as shrewd as snakes and gentle as doves. Let's spend some time in God's, um, God's word this morning and let's, let's talk about what that looks like. Our first text is in Colossians 4. Um, Verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. It's easy for us to jump right to verses um, 5 and 6. Live wisely. Well, but how do we do that? When we talked about this text this week in our, um, in our staff meeting, Notice what he says in verses 2 through 4. He says that prayer is your preparation. Prayer is your preparation for dealing with those who are not believers. And he even tells us how to pray. Here's what I would like for you to do. I would like for you to think about all of the different times and all of the different ways that you interact with people who are not Christians. At work, at school, at McDonald's, at Target or Walmart, online, all of the different ways that you interact with people who are not believers. I wonder what, what would it be like before you went into those spaces, before we went into those environments and we prayed with an alert mind? Like, before you get out of your car at the store, you prayed. You said, God, I'm about to interact with 
about to be in a, whole, in a space with a whole bunch of people who are not believers. Will you guide my time? What would it be like for you to pray with an alert mind and with a thankful heart? Because what Paul's talking about here is he's thankful that he has the opportunity to talk to non-believers. He's thankful for that. He's thankful that he can connect with people who are not Christians. And I know for so many of us, when we go to the store, we just want to go in and we want to get out. But what if you, what if you walked around and you just, without being a creeper, you just, you observed people. You paid attention to what was going on around you. You asked God to give you his eyes to see the people in those spaces. Isn't that how we might live wisely among non-believers and make the most of every moment? Because that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. We're to make the most of every moment. Not just here, not just in some programmed evangelistic moment, but I'm to make the most of every moment. When I'm at the store, when I'm at the restaurant, when I'm at home, when I'm at the gym, when you're at school, when you're at work, every moment means every moment. That means the interactions that I have like we're set up by God for me to have those interactions. Those, those people that we talk to are in that space for a reason. And this is such an honor for us. What would it be like if we, if we looked at those moments as something to honor and not just hurry up and get in and get out of the store? But hey, I'm actually going to interact with people who aren't believers. How should I do that? And then when we get into conversations with people, we are supposed to be gracious. We're supposed to be a blessing to them. I wonder when, when people leave your Jesus conversations that you have, do they feel blessed? Do they feel blessed? Do they feel encouraged? Or do they feel exhausted? Because here comes this person again, and they're going to berate me about Jesus. Do people leave those conversations feeling blessed? Do they leave feeling happy and excited? Do they leave wanting more? The, the, the NLT that I read from says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive. And then it has a little asterisk, and I read down to the bottom, and, and down there, maybe your Bible says this, and seasoned with salt. So maybe your Bible says, and seasoned with salt. Mine has that, but it's just in the footnotes. When you interact with people and they leave, do, you, do, you, do they leave wanting more? Like, that was a good taste. I want more of that. I know when I eat certain foods, I want more of that because it leaves a good taste in my mouth. When I have certain interactions with people, I leave some of those interactions and say, man, that was a really fun conversation. I want more of that. I also leave a lot of interactions and a lot of conversations like, oh, that was exhausting. I never want to talk to that person again. And for us as Christians, we have the responsibility to be seasoned with salt and to be gracious 
and to want people to be in conversation with us. And when, when our conversations are gracious and, attract, gracious and attractive, we'll have the right response. And this has nothing to do with whether or not we proclaim truth, because we are to proclaim truth. But how do we do it? As I was thinking about this, I know there's one part in Jesus' life when he said, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. So maybe, maybe that's you, right? Your, your default switch is you, you, we hear some of these things and we immediately default to, well, I'm not supposed to be prepared for what I say. Well, being gracious and attractive allows us to be ready with a response. Those two things can coexist. I don't have to plan every conversation, but being prayerful and gracious and attractive in my conversation means that I will have the right response. And what Paul is calling believers to do here is he's calling us to slow down in our relationships. He's calling us to slow down in our conversations. And this is so counter to the way we are in 2018. Here's some additional things that that you might consider, and these all came from our staff meeting this week. What if the most gracious thing that you could say in a conversation is nothing? What if the most gracious thing you could say is nothing? What if you prayed before responding to someone online or in an email? What if you prayed? What if, and you do realize this is possible, what if you received a text and like you recognized that you didn't have to respond within three seconds of receiving that text and you prayed about how you were going to respond in those moments? How many conversations and encounters with people who aren't Christians have you had with people that you've spent zero time in prayer? That you haven't thought about that engagement at all? How many times have you prayed not with an alert mind, but with a dull mind? One that's not awake. How many times have you prayed without a thankless heart? What if the right response differed from person to person? Because that's probably true. And I know that the gospel of Jesus is, is one size fits all. Once, once for all, he died for our sins and he offers us salvation. But how many times did Jesus give a different answer based on who he was talking to? To the same question. How many times did Jesus give different responses based on who was around him? How many times did Jesus give a different response based on where he was? See, as, as Christians, when we interact with people, yes, there's a one-size-fits-all. His name is Jesus. But the way we have conversation with people is dependent on a lot of different things. I would even say it's dependent on the kind of relationship I have with a person. Just some things for us to consider. So, Live wisely. How do we interact with people? How, how are we as shrewd as snakes 
and gentle as doves. We make the most of every opportunity by being gracious and attractive so we have the right response for people. And we pray first. Here's the next uh, text I want to talk about. Go ahead and flip a few pages back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 15 to 26. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer, as in in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They've left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they've turned some people away from the faith. But God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription, The Lord knows who, those who are his, and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you'll be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you'll be ready for the master to use you for every good work. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Again, I say don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change these people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. This time the prep work is not prayer. But the prep work is living a righteous life. We were talking about this on on Monday. I I love the example of utensils in the home. When I was growing up, we had the good dishes. Maybe this was your experience. When I was growing up, we had the good dishes, which we never used, right? They never came out of the cabinet because they were the good dishes. And then we had everything else that we used all of the time. When we're pure, when we're pure, when we are righteous because of what God has done for us, we'll come to understand that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing the truth about who Jesus is, it's a special occasion. It's an honorable time for us. So when I run into Walmart because I have to get something really quick, and and my my mind says, get in and get out. That's not a special occasion. What if it's supposed to be a special occasion? And I would submit that it is. If I'm righteous, if I'm pure because of what God has done. But all too often, we act common. We act common. We act like the world. I wonder if you saw one of the instructions in this text. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. 
The word lust in this context, in this text, has nothing to do with sexuality and has everything to do with our desires and our cravings. If you hop online at the beginning of the day and you know that that is just going to ramp you up for the entire day, even if you don't respond, even if you don't type something that's against someone about what they say, even if you don't engage in that, what I would tell you is you are not fleeing youthful lusts. If the sole purpose of of hopping online is to see what everybody's mad about during the day, and man, I am just so guilty of that. I don't Twitter very well. But that's not me fleeing youthful lusts. If I know that that's the thing that's going to cause anxiety in my life, if I get anxiety from that, then don't do it. You don't have to be common. You don't have to be a common utensil. Common utensils, common people, allow themselves to be overwhelmed with emotion and poor choices. And what, again, Paul here is telling Timothy in particular and us through the principle that that we're God's utensils and we're supposed to be set apart for special occasions. And every occasion ought to be special. And when all we do is comment on things, it's just noise. Predictable noise. We're not called to be noisy. The Greek here says, avoid foolish and uninformed controversies. And my favorite thing about that word foolish, one of the definitions for the word foolish means blockhead. Don't be a blockhead. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, don't be a blockhead. I love that. Don't be a blockhead. Don't be foolish. One of the things that that I'm learning as, as I get older, one of the things I'm learning as I get older is how much I don't know. Is is how ignorant. I truly am, is how uninformed I truly am. But that doesn't stop me from having a million opinions. And my guess is that's true with you as well. And in 2018, if we've done anything, and we've done a lot of things, we've replaced wisdom and knowledge with opinion. If we want to be God's utensil, set apart for a special task, it's not enough for us to be opinionated. And even when we're right, what, what, Timothy, what Paul is telling Timothy here is to be kind, to be able to teach, to be patient with, with difficult people, to gently instruct When we do these things, according to what Paul wrote, perhaps God will change their hearts and they'll learn the truth. And then they'll come to their senses and they'll escape from the devil. Here are some things, again, for you to consider that came from our staff meeting this week. Did you notice that it's God who changes hearts in that text? God 
changes hearts. We can't. God changes hearts. I wonder if you notice the order that God works in. First, there's a heart change. And then there's a mind change. And lastly, there is a behavioral change. Did you catch that? The way God functions is he changes hearts, then he changes minds, and then he changes behaviors. God's not after behavior modification. God's after a new heart. Do you remember from our Hebrew study where God says he was going to write his new covenant? The laws in their minds and on their hearts. That's the business that God is in. And for us, I wonder how many times have we started with someone's behavior? We see someone who's not a believer and we start with their behavior. We condemn their behavior. We condemn their fruit. How many times have we just wanted people to be better? Here's a better question. How many times have you just wanted to be better? How many times have you started with behavior? Over the past couple weeks, I've shared with you my prayer plan, right? Every day, my days are pretty uh, normal during the week. I, I do certain things on certain days. And at the, at the bottom of every day, I've added two things that I pray for every day. First is workers for the harvest, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And the second, the final thing, is a new heart. Because that's what I need. I need a new heart. Now, I may need to stop doing some things and start doing uh, some things, like behaviorally, like there's an element of that. But I need a transformed heart. And maybe God, maybe God will change my heart so I can learn the truth. And then finally, finally, I'll be ready to be an expensive utensil, ready for the master to use me in every one of his good works. And that's, that's my prayer for you, is that you would have a new heart. You would have a new heart. So here's step one. Live wisely, making the most of every opportunity by being gracious and attractive so you have the right response for people and pray first. Here's step two. Don't be a blockhead. Be holy and point people to Jesus. Let's go a few pages now toward the front to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9, and 9 to 13. So 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, starting at verse 9. When I wrote to you before... I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer 
yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people, don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. There's a whole lot going on in these little verses right here. One of the things, this is just a little sidebar, one of the things I want you to see is the very first verse that I read, uh, which was verse 9. When I wrote to you before, so here's like, Here's what we should hear in that. The letter that we call 1 Corinthians wasn't the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. I remember the first time I read that text and my mind was like, <laughs> like that didn't make any sense to me because I thought we had all the letters. I thought we had everything. And this isn't the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth yet. We call what we have 1 Corinthians. It's kind of a mind boggler for me. I remember I was, I was teaching a Sunday school where we were talking about that. And as soon as I said it, like, people started thinking all of these questions. And maybe you're thinking these same questions. Like, where's that letter now? What was in that letter? What did Paul tell the people at Corinth in that letter? And here was my question. What if they found it? Would they put it in the Bible? And someone in the back of the room raised their hand, and they said this. They said, well, that depends on what it says. I was like, wow, that's a really good answer to that question. Let's get back to Corinth. The church at Corinth was a complete and total disaster. Complete and total disaster. I don't know... Maybe some of you have, have been in a really dysfunctional church environment or come from a really dysfunctional church environment. Um, I can promise you uh, what, whatever environment you were in that was dysfunctional was nothing like the church at Corinth. They were suing one another. When they got together for their potluck meals and communion times, it was an opportunity for them to get drunk. They openly promoted economic division. And they were spiritually stuck up. The ones that had the better gifts of the Spirit lorded it over those who had the worst gifts of the Spirit. The culture that they were living in at the time was so sexually charged that there was actually a person, and that's, that's what chapter 5 is dealing with, there was actually a person who was having sex with his stepmom. And here's how the church responded to that situation. They wave the flag of tolerance and acceptance for those inside the church. They allowed whatever anyone wanted to do with inside the church, they allowed that to take place. Because that was an evidence of God's grace, right? But they pointed the finger outside the church and condemned everyone who wasn't a part of them. That ought to weigh on us a little bit. We ought to think about this text a little bit. Of how we respond to sin within the body of Christ versus outside of the body of Christ. And in that initial letter to the church at Corinth, Paul told them, don't associate with people 
who are guilty of sexual sin. And here's how they took that. People outside the church. So what they did was they got inward. They got inwardly focused. You could say they made life about themselves. Their, prayer, their, their preferences, their power, their place, and their position. And they judged all of the outsiders for all of their sins. And not just sexual sins, but sins like greed and cheating and idolatry. And, and what Paul is doing in this text is he's correcting their orientation. He's giving them a very specific instruction. He's saying, you need to look inward. You need to look inward. You need to look at yourselves. The unrepentant sinners among you, that's who you are to judge. That's who you are hold, to hold accountable. That's who you are to be proclaiming the gospel to and calling them to repentance and not tolerating their unrepentant sin. And the setup here is just is so simple for us. As Christians, we are called to be in relationships with non-Christians. We're called to be in relationship with non-Christians. We must be in close proximity to them. The Greek word for that means we are to mix up together with. We are to keep company with them. And that is, that is not just seeing them at Walmart or in a restaurant. That's actually being engaged in relationship with non-Christians. Having them over to your house, going over to their house, talking to them about their lives. Because how else are we going to make disciples of non-believers? If our mindset is to judge them and to not have anything to do with them, how can we be gracious and attractive to them? How can we have the right answers to them if we don't know them? How would we even know what to say? It's not our responsibility to judge those outside the faith. It's not our responsibility to judge those outside the faith. It's not our responsibility. That's what, that's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. It's not our responsibility. Why would we be surprised when a non-Christian acts like a non-Christian? Does it make any sense to us? How else do you want them to act? How else do you want them to behave? We've talked a few times about Romans 1 over the past couple months, right? So God made all things. People can look at all of creation. And what can be known about him is invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature. It's revealed. But some people, they see that. And what we do is we twist that. We hear what God is saying to us and we twist it and we reject him. And, and what's the fruit of that rejection? Well, Romans 1 continues. I'm just going to read verses 24 to 32 from Romans chapter 1. So this is after. So people see, hear God. They, they know what he is. They, they know something about him because of what's been made. And they disobey him. They, they reject it. They twist it. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did violent, degrading things with each other's bodies. 
They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Sounds like 2018, right? They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Why would we be surprised when a non-believer acts like a non-believer? Why would we surprised? Why would we be surprised when someone who has no moral compass acts like they have no moral compass? This is the behavior that Paul is talking about here again in Romans. It's just the fruit of what's inside of them. The Timothy text tells us that they're following the devil. Fruit just grows. If you plant an apple tree, at some point, what's going to come off of that apple tree? An apple, right? It's just going to happen. So for us, and this is, this is why this heart thing is so important. Whatever is going on inside of our hearts is going to dictate our behavior. And what do sinners need? They need a new heart. They need a new heart. This is the only thing that God can give to them. So what, so what do we do? Do we tolerate and accept their sinfulness? Do we allow them to go cuckoo crazy and just ruin the lives of themselves and everyone around them and just like go at it, go to town? Well, let's look at Matthew 9. Last text. Matthew 9, Jesus is traveling all over the place and he's healing people and he's hanging out um, with all of the disreputable sinners, uh, probably going to Dollar Burger Night at the Union Bar and Grill in Jerusalem um, because surely his, his hometown had one of those. Listen to verse 36. If you have your Bible open, read verse 36 with me. When he saw the crowds, he had what? When he saw the crowds, he had what? He had compassion on them. Because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. When they were going cuckoo crazy bananas, he had compassion on them. Can we pause for a minute? 
And can we thank God that he had compassion on us? Because before we, you, entered into this relationship with Christ, this, like, this was you. And I know for some of us, like, that's a real, mentally, that's a real stretch. Right? Because we, we made the decision to follow Christ when we were nine years old at camp, so I really wasn't that bad of a person. But that's not what Scripture says. In Ephesians 2, it says that before you entered, this is the John Mulholland paraphrase, before you entered into a relationship with Christ, you were dead. Even at nine. Even at nine, you were dead. We didn't earn our salvation. We didn't merit our salvation. We don't deserve our salvation. Because we were once like these people, confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus saw us, and he had compassion on us. He had compassion. Thank you, God, for having compassion on me. Isn't that what it's like to pray with a thankful heart? Because if God had compassion on me, then he can have compassion on the miserable sinners that I run into at Walmart. He can have compassion on them. He can have compassion, and he does have compassion. He can have compassion on the people I run into in the grocery store. He has compassion on the people who are the most difficult people in your life to get along with. Because that was once us. He didn't waste his opportunities with them and become a blockhead. He had compassion. He had empathy towards them. This is what he told his disciples. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. The special meal is ready. And for some of us, all we are is common utensils. We can't be used by God because we don't spend time in prayer because we're not seeking after the righteousness that God gives us and we're too busy judging the outside world. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. Just about two years ago, little less, actually two years ago next weekend, I was here on my tryout weekend and I shared with you all that um, about 50% of the people in Scotts Bluff County um, claim no religion or no faith in Jesus. That was two years ago. Here's my question. What's changed? What's changed? What, what are we going to do about that? Because we are the workers. When we ask Jesus for workers for the harvest, this is us. We are the workers. You. You're a worker, and you're a worker, and you're a worker, and yes, I'm feeling like Oprah right now. You are all workers. And the fields are ripe for the harvest. We are surrounded by people who have a gaping hole in their life. And what's happening is, is they are stuffing anything they can in to fill that void. 
wealth and health and stuff and houses and material things and good grades and job performance. They're stuffing everything into that. Drugs and alcohol abuse, sexual abuse. Like they're just trying to fill that hole. They're trying to fill that gap. And even some of them are doing things like putting church attendance into that gap because they have rationalized for themselves that to be a Christian means I show up at church once a week. So that goes in the hole too. And here's the thing. The only thing that fills that void is Jesus. That's it. It's the only thing. How are you working? Because you're a worker and I'm a worker. What kingdom are we proclaiming to those who don't know Jesus? Pastor Scott Sauls recently wrote this. What matters more to us? That we successfully put others in their place or that we are known to love well? What matters more to us, that we win elections or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love? God have mercy on us if we do not love well because all that matters to us is winning. Pray before you engage. Don't be a blockhead. Love those outside of the faith. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we would be focused on the lost like you are. I pray that we would look out into into the world of people who have no idea who you are and that our primary emotion would be compassion. It would not be judgmentalism. It would not be a hard heart. It would be compassion. Help us to be filled with lives of compassion for people who don't know you and to serve them well. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.